Well, welcome everyone to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad you're joining us. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast, which is dedicated to and guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right, your questions as they come in live about the Bible. So if you have questions about verses or passages in Scripture, maybe Christian living or world events from a, a biblical perspective, uh, lifestyles from a biblical perspective, really any honest question that you have, as long as you know we're going to delve into God's Word to find those answers. We believe that the Bible is God's uh, holy Word, um, completely without error, that He breathed it out, inspired it, and that it's the source of all wisdom and absolutely perfect. And so that's where we find our answers and where we find God's heart for mankind. So that's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. I will be hosting and checking those questions as they come on in, as you send them in. And with me today in the studio is Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, once again, learning more and more things about the animal kingdom. Uh, I, uh, I hesitate to ask, but what have you been learning <laughs> recently? Well, you should always try to learn something new every day. <laughs> yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. Well, I found out that if you put socks and shoes on a bear, he will still have bare feet. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. I'm so glad I had coffee before the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, full disclosure, I am, I am barefooted as we speak. Uh, oh, are you? I'm, I'm having this hankering for honey for some reason. <laughs> right. I can confirm that. Yeah. You can't see, but I can confirm. Also, with this, Sean's father, I blame him, uh, <laughs> Pastor Scott Richards, yeah. who's the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian If you've Christian sat Fellowship. through any of my sermons, you know where Sean's gotten his... Um, alleged sense of I humor. Know. So. And when this used to be uh, just a radio show, it was hard to tell the difference between who was speaking sometimes. Yes, <laughs> it's like, is Scott yeah. solo today? No, no, Sean and Scott. He kind of yes. sounds yeah, very well, similar. It, it, it helps. Uh, and uh, tomorrow night we'll be uh, teaching through Daniel chapter 9, one of the most, mm. I think, significant prophetic passages in the entire Bible. I, yeah. I say that without fear of contradiction. Yes. And, yeah. and we'll tell you why, and uh, we'll tell you what, and I think... If uh, you've never studied Daniel chapter 9, it'll be a real mind-blower for you. But Very that's good. Uh, tomorrow at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Great, yeah, yeah. 6.30 p.m. Uh, and it goes out on the same channels as you're joining us um, today. So, yeah, we recently came to the end of uh, the book of Revelation, and we're doing a short series on other end-timed um, related subjects. Yeah, because uh, whenever you teach through <laughs> Revelation, uh, it's so funny. Afterwards, people will, you know, will go through pretty much every subject you could imagine. Mm. Uh, in biblical prophecy, teaching verse by verse through Revelation. But inevitably, people will say, yeah, but what about the rapture? Or, yeah, um, you know, what about the role of Israel in the last mm -hmm. days? Uh, you know, or I had somebody ask me a question about, uh, you know, uh, who's the Antichrist? And someone was uh, suggesting that there's another candidate out there. Uh, Klaus Schwab, I guess, mm -hmm. is... Uh, getting a lot of traction along that Sounds line. Like a bad guy name. Well, he's the head of the World Economic Foundation, and uh, they paraded about uh, wearing uh, Chairman Mao jackets yesterday, which I thought was an interesting uh, fashion choice, uh, including the President of the United States, but there you go. Uh, but, Who among us have not dressed up like a genocidal dictator from the early 19th century, or that's early true. 20th century, <laughs> yeah. excuse me. Yeah, yeah, so We've all been us, there. Let us cast the first stone. Uh, but... Uh, but Anyhow, um, there you go. Yeah, mm. great. Yeah, well, great. <laughs> great. <laughs> Moving right along. Moving right along. Again, you're, you're welcome. That's to what us. you're here to do, Dave. <laughs> That's right. Keep this Moving thing moving along. <laughs> Switch the camera to me. And carry on. <laughs> 
Oh, oh so yes, tomorrow, tomorrow evening at Calvary Christian Fellowship, we have our regular service there at 6.30 p.m. You're welcome to join us in person if you're in the Tucson area or, again, on these same channels that The Reason for Hope goes out on. We will be live there as well. So join us all things and times. It's been very fascinating and educational. Well, so if you're hearing us and seeing us, then you found a way to join us. But there's multiple ways you can be part of the broadcast tonight. Uh, Reason for Hope is a, a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, follow the Watch Live tab and join us there. There's a chat function right there. That's a great home base to go to if you find any technical issues on some of the other platforms. That's usually a very reliable spot to fall back on. But also on Facebook, you can join us, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for that page. Join us there as, as well. We have an app that you can download for your mobile device and also for Roku and Apple TV. So again, search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and you'll find us there. On YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. That's A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. If you're joining us on the radio, on Reach Radio, welcome. Drive safely. And uh, you can send us uh, your questions via email, but you are listening to our previous show pre-recorded, so do consider joining us on one of our live platforms sometime. You can uh, follow Scott, Pastor Scott, on Twitter at Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H, and he posts uh, highlights from the show and uh, updates on on world events and snarky snippets and all kinds of good stuff. So Occasional debates about things theological. So, yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so do follow along there as well. Well, with all that being said, Pastor Scott, would you like to pray for us tonight? I would sure like to talk oh. to God before anything else happens here. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, Lord, thank you so much. We can welcome your presence here. With joy, we come to your word because it really is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And in these confusing and sometimes confounding days, you bring us clarity, Lord. You bring us comfort, and we thank you so much. Uh, for these gifts. We pray your word would be spoken in truth and in grace, uh, that you would uh, use us, uh, Lord, in ways we can't even begin to understand, uh, causing us to go to passages and parts of your word that are going to be just exactly right to minister to the hearts of those who are taking the time to join us. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be able to seek you uh, during this time. And Lord, thank you for your promise that if we seek you, we're going to find you. Uh, when we search for you with all of our heart, we want to have that wholehearted commitment to your truth now. So guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Scott, I have to be honest. I get most of my news from you because I trust you more than a lot of other sources. <laughs> well, that was your first mistake. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But uh, do you have an update for us today on goings on? Yeah. Uh, really, uh, most of the time we do a prophecy update. Uh, we focus in on the nation of Israel. But uh, in Matthew chapter 24, one of the birth pains, uh, a sign of the times that would increase in frequency and intensity as the time of Jesus' return draws near, is uh, wars and rumors of wars. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, we've got uh, both of these uh, rolled up into one here today. Uh, breaking news story from earlier, a uh, missile uh, seemingly originating uh, from Russia or possibly the Ukraine hit a village in Poland near the Ukrainian border uh, earlier today. At least two people are dead in the aftermath. And mm -hmm. so uh, it really is a very tragic set of circumstances. Uh, errant missile strikes, to be quite honest, are not uh, unknown, uh, especially when Russian gear is involved. It's not the uh, highest quality stuff. 
But in response to this missile strike, uh, Polish national security officials are holding an emergency session right now to discuss uh, the aftermath of this deadly incident. Uh, as a NATO member, uh, Poland uh, is covered under what is called uh, Article 5 of the NATO Treaty that states, and maybe you've heard this before, that an attack on one member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is an attack on all members of the North Atlantic Treaty uh, Organization upon which the United States is a full-fledged member. Uh, the only time that we've ever seen Article 5 invoked by NATO was following the 9-11 attacks on New York City and Washington, D.C. So it is a pretty big deal. Uh, Russia's defense ministry responded to the fact that Poland was having these meetings by calling uh, the report of uh, these uh, missiles and the destruction involved a deliberate provocation in order to escalate the situation. Well, the big question is which side is doing the escalation. Uh, Ukraine has enjoyed two solid months of battlefield victories, uh, forcing Russia to abandon almost every square mile of territory uh, on the right bank of what is called the Dnipro uh, River. Uh, they've, they've done very, very well. Russia, on the other hand, might benefit from a, a crisis situation like this in that it would give pause to what is going on in Ukraine uh, with uh, the gyrations going on with NATO and so on. Uh, you know, this accidental attack uh, may uh, possibly force alliance leaders to rethink their military and financial uh, aid in this situation. Uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is this, uh, a NATO member nation, Lat Latvia, uh, claims that Article 5 will most likely not be triggered by the strike. Uh, they said it's confirmed that the missiles were Russian and that two of them did strike this town in Poland. Uh, the Latvian Minister of Defense said, whatever happened cannot go unnoticed. One of the possibilities would be for NATO members in Poland to agree on providing additional anti-aircraft protection, including in part of the territory of Ukraine. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because uh, one of the things you have to understand about Russia is that, um, you know, it's been said that America's uh, pastime is baseball. I imagine in Great Britain, the national pastime is uh, soccer or football, as they would call it over there. But in Russia, the national pastime is chess mm. and uh, very much an insight into the Russian way of thinking. Uh, if mm. the Russians, for instance, uh, wanted to... Uh, say, reduce Western aid to Ukraine uh, through a situation like this. Well, uh, this would probably not be the best way to go about it. Basically, what's going to happen is Article 5 of the NATO treaty, attack on one is attack on all, uh, all of NATO getting involved and uh, in fighting against Russia as a result of all this, is not going to happen. Article 4 is going to happen, which we would come to expect, Basically, it means that meetings and consultations mm. and more money will be provided uh, for what's going on in Ukraine. Now, uh, a update that we got right before airtime on all of this is that some people will say that uh, this was a, uh, a uh, Russian uh, provocation uh, that is uh, trying to change the subject, if you will. Uh, others were saying that it was a mistake. 
that it was a, uh, a Russian uh, missile uh, that just wasn't properly guided or there was a technical malfunction. But there's a third possibility that's been raised here, which is very interesting. It could have been an errant Ukrainian air-to-air missile that was fired at an incoming Russian cruise missile. Now, you need to understand what's going on and what Russia's strategy is in the Ukraine right now. The reason that they're backing off from some of these significant areas where they've gained a lot of territory on the ground uh, goes back to fairly recent Russian history. Uh, What Russia has been doing is it's been using cruise missiles and uh, attacks along these times, uh, these kinds, to attack infrastructure in the Ukraine, uh, most notably in the city of Kiev, taking out, uh, say, uh, power plants, uh, the uh, infrastructure that you would need uh, to be able to survive the dreaded Ukrainian winter. And uh, I say recent Russian history plays into all of this because uh, one of the reasons that the Russians were successful uh, in their uh, fighting back against uh, Germany in World War II wasn't uh, because Russia was necessarily superior in technology uh, or uh, military might uh, than Germany, but they had on their side the Russian winter, uh, which was absolutely devastating and ended up uh, decimating uh, the uh, Nazis uh, as they attempted to uh, hold on to the territory they had and you know, the siege of Leningrad and Stalingrad and so forth in World War II uh, was pretty much determined by the weather rather than anything else. The risk of being sent to the Russian front also came with it the necessity for ho- snowshoes. Yeah. Not. yeah, if you've ever watched an episode of Hogan's Heroes, you know they were all scared to go to the Russian front for that reason. Uh, And so, interestingly, uh, there was a a post online at the uh, site Ukrainian Weapons Tracker that identified the fragments that came out of this collision as belonging to two Ukrainian missiles, not Russian Mm -hmm. missiles. So it could have been a Ukrainian missile launched to take out a cruise missile that missed, and Mm -hmm. lo and behold, you have that going on. The long and the short of it was earlier on, there were uh, people posting things about, is this World War III? Is this the big one? No, it's not. But it is, in fact, prophetically speaking, a not necessarily a war, although the war between Russia and Ukraine continues, but it's a rumor of war. And uh, one of the things that I think uh, would come out of something like this, uh, if it was, say, for instance, a false flag, Uh, that the uh, Ukrainians were trying to do would be to uh, give Ukraine the wherewithal to stop uh, this tactic the Russians are using to take out Ukrainian infrastructure with the Ukrainian winter looming larger and larger on the horizon. Mm -hmm. We really don't know, uh, once again, uh, you know, whether it's uh, checkers or chess we're dealing with here, whether it's a mistake, whether this is intended to be uh, manipulative as far as policy is concerned. Mm. We really don't know, but it certainly is interesting how I think between the hours of noon and 3.30 today, uh, the interwebs were uh, literally jumping with ideas of, oh, are we going to war? And is NATO going to go to war against Russia? Mm. Uh, I think uh, the comment out of Latvia uh, pretty much shows that it's not going to be an Article 5 situation where NATO is called in and considers this a, uh, an attack on their territory. I think when it's all said and done, uh, more money is going to be shipped into this arena. More weapons are going to be shipped into this arena. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, again, we don't want to see 
the Ukrainian people freezing to death over the winter. And so uh, we certainly uh, would think that having the wherewithal to defend themselves in such a situation from Russian cruise missiles and such, and Iranian drones, by the way, uh, our government is getting a little peeved with Iran, kind of one of those after all we've done for you situations mm. uh, with uh, the so-called joint comprehensive plan of action, the uh, lifting of sanctions against Iran. Well, we found that Iran has been uh, supplying the Russians with uh, their drone technology. And uh, this has been used in theater there in Ukraine. So uh, interesting sidelight in that Russia and Iran are part of uh, Ezekiel 38. Uh, the last day's invasion of Israel that is predicted in the Bible. Interesting in the sense of wars and rumors of wars, but also interesting in that uh, just because something like this happens, uh, don't get hysterical. You know, don't uh, say the sky is falling. Very interesting. We uh, uh, just would uh, hearken back to the words of Jesus. These things must happen, but the end is not yet. We'll see these birth pains We'll see them increase in frequency and intensity, but uh, tell them, you know, we just need to be found occupying and, you know, keeping ourselves close to the Lord, being used by the Lord to reach as many people as we can, because I do believe we're in the last days. Who knows how much time we have left? Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Miminency says Jesus could come before this program is over, and, and we need to keep that fresh in our minds. Yeah, So right. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Amen to that, and thank you for that, that update. Um, we had a question from... From Nina, thank you, Nina, for joining us again. I know we ran out of time for your question yesterday, um, and she asked it again today, so we appreciate you hanging in there with us. Uh, what's your thoughts on the Pope making new Ten Commandments? Does this have some kind of prophetic significance? Well, it's not the Pope who has done this. Okay. Uh, this is something that has come out of a uh, climate change summit that has been going on in Sharm el-Sheikh in, uh, in Egypt, uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, is a uh, resort city on the Red Sea. It's it's kind of equivalent uh, to uh, where uh, we were in Israel in Elat. Uh, Elat is the Sharm el Sheikh of Israel. It's a resort air, uh, city. Uh, it's uh, kind of like Vegas in Israel in a lot of ways. <laughs> we we went there and stayed overnight because we were on our way to uh, see Petra in Jordan. And boy, I'll tell you, nobody gets a whole lot of sleep in Elat. The nightlife is jumping, and Sharm el-Sheikh is the rough equivalent of that in Egypt. Well, they've had uh, this climate change summit that has gone on there, but the most uh, interesting aspect of it all is they were not only going to have a, a climate change summit there, bringing in all of the usual suspects from all over the world, but uh, they were also going to have a religious summit based upon climate change uh, that was going to meet at Mount Sinai in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula. Now, as we talked about before, whether that is the actual Mount Sinai or not, I think is dubious at best. Uh, That was a site that uh, essentially Constantine's mom looked at and they showed her there and they said, oh yeah, this looks like a mountain that Moses would have gotten the commandments from. And it kind of stuck after that. I think there's a lot more to suggest that the actual site of Mount Sinai is somewhere in the Saudi Peninsula Mm. uh, across the Red Sea area. There's a place called uh, Jabal al-Laz on uh, the other side of the Red Sea there that really does fit a lot of the descriptions of Mm. uh, what uh, the actual Mount Sinai would be. But suffice it to say, can't go really go in there now. 
and do a lot of archaeological digging, so it's all kind of speculation. What is not speculation is the fact that they decided to have uh, this climate change summit uh, there, and that part of the climate change summit uh, is uh, going to Mount Sinai. They were going to bring in all the heavy hitters from around the world. Uh, The initial idea that the Pope was going to be there, the Dalai Lama was going to be there, that significant Muslim clerics were going to be there. And the idea behind this, uh, in the way it's been described, is that all these religious groups would come together and say, we need to set aside our differences and focus in on saving the planet. If we don't save the planet, we're not going to be here, so we need to set aside our quote-unquote petty differences and uh, all begin to march under this one banner of using our influence among anyone who's under our spiritual tutelage uh, for the cause of climate change. So in the name of a lie, groups of people who are in each other's eyes lying to their own congregants should lie together about something that they can't verify. Well, the, the most interesting thing that came out of all of this was they did publish their uh, new Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments uh, of climate change, and uh, you know, it was about being generous and and being kind to the planet and not being selfish and and you know, I mean, it was like a list of ten platitudes. But the most interesting thing that came out of this is that uh, the idea of the Pope Nina being there, uh, or the Dalai Lama, or some of these heavy hitters from they, they wanted to bring everybody. They wanted to bring the head of the Sikhs. They wanted to bring in the, the you know Buddhist representative. They wanted to bring in Hindu representatives wow. and so on. But they uh, were not able to because Egypt would not allow it. And the interesting reason that was given by the Egyptian government for not allowing all these religious individuals into the site there and having uh, the media event that they were hoping for was they said, quote, the time is not right. (laughs) It's not saying that it's not going to happen. Mm. It's just saying that the time is not right. So, um, you know, if you want to go online and take a look at um, the um, uh, Climate Change Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, you can uh, dig deeper into all of that. It wasn't the Pope that came up with it. It was uh, basically the individuals that were putting together this uh, particular confab that's put on by the United Nations. Is that prophetically significant? Well, in a sense it is, in that we see another step closer to trying to unite the world under a one-world government. But ever since uh, the languages were scattered at Babel, way back in the book of Genesis, all the king's horses and all the king's men have not been able to put Babel back together again. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there have been all these attempts to, we've got to have a one-world government. We've got to, you know, unite. We we can't be divided uh, any longer. Uh, So, you know, when we see these things happening, we see... A couple things. First of all, we see that this is the passionate project of pretty significant entities like the United Nations, including having a one-world religion where we all put aside uh, our differences, read our doctrinal truths to come together to save the planet. Um, That's pretty interesting. But the other interesting thing about it is uh, even the Egyptian government's uh, response to all of this, saying uh, that the time's not right. It's not right yet. Well, you know, who's going to make 
the time right. Well, I, I don't believe that a one world government is going to be implemented until, um, as we're going to see in Daniel chapter nine tomorrow night, uh, the Antichrist himself comes on the scene. And confirms a covenant for seven years. But the point being made is just that. Uh, this is no more significant, Nina, or prophetically impactful as far as Scripture is concerned than Richard Dawkins' Atheist Ten Commandments that he produced in The God Delusion or Christopher Hitchens' amended version. The point being made is, and when the question is asked, why do people make God's Word more complicated than it has to be, that question on its own, just addressing in broader strokes, is for one reason one reason only. They have no fear of God. In Psalm 36 and verse 1, which is quoted in Romans chapter 3, that that is the fundamental trait of someone who promotes false doctrine, who plays fast and loose with the word of God. We read in Revelation 22 and in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I believe, that people who add or take away from God's word are answering to him directly and seriously. The only people who would even tempt that kind of outcome are those who don't think the outcome is meaningful to begin with. People who either reject God or people that think they're above God, that they don't have to answer to him. And the point being made is just that. When there are people out there who are false teachers, false prophets, people who will distort God's word for their own gain, we shouldn't, A, be surprised because that's a sign of the times even on its own. In Matthew 24, the first thing Jesus mentions aren't the natural disasters, aren't even necessarily the military yeah, disasters. It's, it's yeah. the spiritual and moral disasters that false Christs and false prophets will rise and deceive many. The key, Nina, is not to be one of them. If you know God's word, then you'll be able to recognize when someone's uh, playing fast and loose with it for political expediency or something else. Yeah. Yeah, or to get ratings on TV. <laughs> right, so, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, we had <clears throat> a question yesterday from Reynold, and I see he's joining us again. I felt like we sort of ran out of time to to get into it as as deeply as we could have, and I think it's a really important question. Um, the question is about why is the church divided into Catholic, Protestant? He mentioned even Calvary Chapel, different denominations. And I, I don't know. I remember years ago looking from the outside, I didn't know the difference. Being Catholic, Protestant, Baptist, Calvary Chapel, Pentecostal. So maybe could you give a rundown of of the division and why and and how all that kind of falls into place? Yeah, we mentioned it yesterday sure. that if you have many people, you're going to have many passions. That individuals who would emphasize certain truth statements aren't in error at even emphasizing them at the expense of others. Groups that would emphasize, for example, worship and a more experience-based approach to God, we would call, and they would identify themselves, as Pentecostal. That's in reference to Acts chapter 2, the meeting at Pentecost, where during that festival the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church and it was demonstrated through signs. However, they leave out that the majority of Acts chapter 2 is dedicated to and consistent teaching of God's word, but all that aside. Roman Catholics, the word Catholic just means universal, are those Christians, and I'll say that with clarification in a moment, who would emphasize more of a structured and traditional approach to God, and they would be in line with, we'll clarify this term as well, Mm -hmm. orthodoxy, a sound teaching of Christian truth, insofar as that's what makes them different from the Christian across the street or the Christian on the screen. I'm not a Catholic, but I am a Christian, and I would call a Catholic, insofar as that is their unique distinction, a brother. 
the reason why you have different denominations, and again, there's a significance to that word as well, but for the sake of clarity, for those listening on the outside, maybe you're Dave uh, 15 years ago or whatever, you need to understand that every, yeah. every single point of emphasis... <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. You are that old. Yeah. Uh, every single point of emphasis that would distinguish a Roman Catholic from a Protestant and would distinguish a Protestant from a non-denominational Christian and vice versa are all on secondary doctrines. It's fundamentally and united on the one truth statement that A equals A that Christ is who we claim to be. Mm. If someone claims to start a new denomination, but they reject the core fundamental tenets of what it means to be a Christian, like Mormonism, for instance, then we would Mm. say that they're a part of a cult. Cult comes from culture. It's an idea or a paragon centered around an individual. Mormonism would associate Joseph Smith as the ultimate and most recent revelation of God's truth, and they consider his writings on par with Scripture. We'll talk about how that is a no-no in a moment. We can talk about Charles Taze Russell and his revival of Arianism, which is another cult, a denial of who Jesus is. Of course, if they worship a fake Jesus, they're by definition not Christian. Uh, Muslims can claim in Surah 2 that they worship the same God as Jews and Christians, but then their own revelations then counteract and their words, not mine, abrogate that and say that we need to be subjugated in Surah 9 and verse 30. When it goes on and on like this, people can say things, but what do they mean by those things? And that's what ultimately separates the men from the boys. If I say, oh, I'm a Catholic, I kind of squint a little bit and go, okay, but are you a Christian? Mm. And that's sometimes a stumbling point for some people because they haven't taken the time to know what Christian means. Christian means that you affirm, and we try to keep this baseline as possible, four fundamental truths about the nature of God and how we relate to him. First, that Jesus is God, that if there was a revelation of God in history, Jesus of Nazareth showed us what that's like. In that revelation of Jesus, the second fact is that the nature of God is not unipersonal, but tri-personal, that there are three persons within the nature of the one and only God. So we would affirm the Trinity as a non-negotiable in that regard because Jesus revealing God spoke to God and yet was God. How do we resolve this? And he also said that he'd send God to indwell the hearts of those who affirmed his claims in the name of God. Mm. So you have to reconcile all of this. This is one of the things that we can't negotiate. The third fact is, of course, where we get all this information from. The Bible is our authority on who God is and how he's revealed himself in history. Note the previous question from Nina, that if you add or take away from that, you add and take away from the faith. And if our belief is in one and you make it zero or two, Mm -hmm. it's not one anymore. Likewise, you take away or add from the fundamental beliefs of Christianity, you're not a Christian. That's why we make a distinction between cults and denominations. And then lastly, the nature of salvation from that source. How do we have a relationship with God as revealed by Jesus and affirmed by the Trinity? That is by grace through faith, period. Now, there are Roman Catholics who would say, no, it's through the sacraments. Well, we would say, 
now you're not a Christian because you're tatting and taking away from God's word. Mm-hmm. We, there would be Mormons who would say, no, it's by grace you have been saved after all you can do. Okay, You're not a Christian because you're taking away from the fundamentals of the faith. Right. But if, on the other hand, a Catholic just says, I just like the structure because I come from a military background or... My I was cult- raised with this. Yeah, yeah, my culture just emphasizes this as how I get into the God mood, if you will. God bless you. I'm glad that you're spending time in God's Word, and I hope that your priest teaches from it like we emphasize here. But if he doesn't, that's where we start to squint, because that's when people get into error. So the whole crux of denominations and division We don't want to resort to blasphemy and say that it's God's will for the church to be divided. We need to ask, what is dividing us, the truth or secondary issues? Mm -hmm. And if the divisions are within secondary issues, then ask, are those secondary issues worth dividing over? People who would have a more worship-based approach to God are more ministered to in Pentecostal churches. And you know what? God bless them, right. because they aren't sacrificing any fundamentals. So but it's a they, question of style rather than substance. And if they went yeah. to a church that only allowed a certain approach to God through verse-by-verse Bible teaching, through traditions that they didn't necessarily understand or agree with, then they wouldn't be ministered to. They'd be genuinely approaching God, like many Pentecostals are, but they would be best suited among people who shared those interests, as you say, in style, not in substance. Likewise for tradition, likewise for verse-by-verse teaching, likewise for fill-in-the-blank. So the point being made, uh, Reynolds, is that when we're talking about the what divides us, it's more a caricature of the internet. It's what defines us, mm. and that is what's ultimately important. Denominations are made out to be more than they are, and if someone on the internet says, oh, Christians can't agree on the truth, no, we do agree on four fundamental truths. If you deny those things, then it's not a matter of denying this, it's a matter of denying that. That is Christianity, not our way of defining it. We don't want to get into this Marxist relativism of saying, well, that's your Christianity. No, there's Jesus Christ, and there's a wrong way to come to him. If we can agree on those fundamentals, then how you do so is a uh, secondary issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I thoroughly agree with that. Um, don't really have much to add. Yeah, because yeah. Calvary Chapel is a non-denominational, but there is, like you say, there's that character and style of teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's something you'll find in, I imagine, all if not most, Calvary chapels. Yeah, and, and there's always the question, what do you mean non-denominational? Right. Uh, <laughs> well, a denomination usually has a headquarters that uh, controls all of its churches. It determines who the pastors are going to be. Uh, you know, it can move pastors around. Uh, you know, it, it owns all of the, the property uh, and so on. Uh, and it's all under that one umbrella. If you're part of the Southern Baptist Convention, for mm-hmm. instance, uh, that, that's the operation you're under. If you're a Lutheran or or uh, you know a Presbyterian of, of different stripes, you'll find that there's this national or worldwide headquarters that uh, basically you're uh, adhered to. Mm-hmm. Calvary were a little different. Um, you know, it kind of started out with um, uh, as Chuck Gerard once sang, a little country church on the edge of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when there was country to be found in Orange County, uh, <laughs> Chuck Smith started this church with 17 people, and uh, through the Jesus Movement, uh, it just uh, exploded. And uh, as a result of um, all of these hippies and lost people coming to know the Lord, 
they discovered the value of verse-by-verse teaching through the entire Bible. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you've got any kind of teaching gifts and you're in a Calvary chapel, or at least at Costa Mesa, and after a while, they look at you and go, what are you still doing here? You should go out and start a church just like Chuck did. And so, uh, you know, we did that. Um, I served on staff with Pastor Chuck uh, as his editor and ran the college and career ministry and a number of other things uh, while I was there. Uh, but uh, when we started this church, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget, uh, you know, that my, having a conversation with my dad about all of this. He thought the last church that got started was during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and uh, he goes, so you're going to start a church. Well, you know, Chuck Smith's bought you a church building, right? You know, which would be a denominational approach. And I said, well, no, no. I At that point, I didn't even know where we were going to meet. Yeah. My dad looked at me and went, oh, well, he's an attorney. He's taught to, taught to think in worst case scenario. So he goes, well, um, you know, Chuck is going to underwrite you till you get this thing going financially, right? And I said, well, no. As a matter of fact, uh, Chuck... Uh, gave us a check for $130 for our first <laughs> offering. And that was it. You're on your own, kid. Uh, and, you know, it's just it's a wonderful thing because we want to depend on the Lord. And he goes, oh. He goes, well, you've already got a group of people all organized waiting for you to get out. And I said, well, really, I don't know if anybody's going to show up. And he just shook his head. And he said, son, how in the world are you going to make it? And I said, well, I don't think the world's got a whole lot to do with it, Dad. I, if God's in it, God's going to bless it. And, you know, afterwards I thought, yeah, he's right. How are we going to make it? <laughs> but but that's how Calvary's work. And, uh, you know, the, it, it, it has its pluses and its minuses. Yeah. You know, uh, we're, we're Calvary Chapels because it's a voluntary association. It's a fellowship of believers that hopefully uh, believe in some pretty basic things, verse-by-verse teaching through the Word of God, the, uh, the teaching of the rapture, the pre-tribulation uh, rapture, uh, and, uh, and the, the imminent coming of Christ. Uh, the fact that uh, the gifts of the Spirit are for today, but should be practiced decently and in order according to scriptural guidelines. You know, these are a number of, of uh, the uh, distinctives, if you will, mm. of a Calvary Chapel. And usually those who are part of a Calvary Chapel will all be under that one roof. Occasionally, some people will um, say, well, you know, we want to be a Calvary Chapel, but we want to teach Calvinism. We want to teach Reformed theology. Mm. Well, there was kind of a movement of that in the Midwest, and you know, Chuck Smith said, "Look, you know, you're you're welcome to teach Reformed theology, but don't call yourself a Calvary Chapel because we're just not into that. It's a fellowship." Amos three three says, "How can two walk together unless they be alone? Uh, unless they be agreed?" Uh, so we we really need to see that it's this informal um, association, uh, you know. I imagine if uh, someone uh, in the Calvary Chapel movement uh, heard that we were, you know, teaching by salvation by uh, saving string or something like that, they they might come to us and say, oh "Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, once this we hear about this, and maybe you shouldn't be a Calvary if you're teaching this sort of thing." Yeah. But it really is a voluntary association, and um, each church is independent, mm. uh, and uh, you know, each church has its own board and its own. Uh, bylaws and uh, its own uh, articles of incorporation and such. So that's yeah. how Calvary's work. Great. There's a great uh, book, uh, Calvary Distinctives, which we have here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, or I'm sure you can find it online, which just the, goes over the, the beliefs and doctrine of Calvary Chapel. Great. Very simple, you know, very refreshing, really. But if you're interested in that, delving deeper 
um, you can certainly get hold of that book, Calvary Distinctives. We have a Spanish version as well for Spanish speakers. But um, hey, um, I was Sean, before the show, we were having a discussion about use the fancy word. I know we usually we do Apologetic Tuesday. Yeah. I, I don't remember what, what the word is. Socinianism. I was close. Oh, yeah. It's got that Italian flair because so, so, the guy who found hey, it was that helped me remember. In fact, the founders were Italian. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. But really. um, yeah, uh, what's that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, that, that is a great, well, Socinianism uh, was something that arose in harmony with the Protestant Reformation. But uh, like a lot of genuine works of God, whenever God does a great work, uh, inevitably there are counterfeits that come along. And uh, the first thing uh, that we can say about Socinianism was founded by Lelio Sozini, and his cousin Fausto Sozini. Hey, you know, so you <laughs> gotta do you it like gotta that. Gotta use your, your your hands when you say this. But uh, but anyway, they uh, they had as their uh, linchpin human reason rather than divine revelation. But they still wanted to be spiritual. Mm. So what they did was uh, the first thing they said was that uh, biblical doctrine has to be judged by human reason, and uh, matters pertaining, say, for instance, to the nature of God himself are beyond the finite understanding of the, the human mind. Well, that mm. contradicts the Bible, which tells us that God has revealed himself to us. Now, certainly, God does great things beyond searching out marvelous things without number, but we are told, uh, for instance, uh, you know, although Romans chapter 11 and verse 33 says, of the depths and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and uh, how inscrutable are his ways, uh, you know, we can also know that uh, uh, God does lead us into understanding of all things through his spirit. Uh, that uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, we're told that God reveals his truth to us. The Holy Spirit is here to lead us into all truth. Yeah, it's not to say that we can't understand the Trinity, but to fully apprehend it is another issue entirely. A Socinian would be uh, basically given that distinction and saying, well, we deny the Trinity because everything, I'm doing this on purpose, can be apprehended. That's the argument. Yeah, they they also kind of followed this down the line. They were Unitarians mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that they denied the doctrine of the Trinity because who can understand it? And if you can't understand it, then it can't be true. Uh, from a, a human uh, point of view, they denied the uh, the divinity of Jesus. They held that uh, he didn't exist until he was born as a man, uh, and uh, that uh, he was an especially gifted spiritual leader. But he certainly wasn't God in human flesh. Uh, they also taught uh, what's called open theism, mm -hmm. uh, which. Uh, you, Give us a definition of that. Uh, just that uh, God's as much surprised by events in world history as we are, that the possibilities of the future is just as unknown to God as they are to us. So the idea of time being a concept not under God's authority, but that God himself is subject to, it creates a God out of time, space, and matter above the introduction of space, time, and matter. That is from God. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So basically the argument of open theism is and note this, Reformed theologians, Calvinists, would go basically distance themselves from the extreme, total, far 
into their theology belief that yeah. God determines everything even down to the most heinous evil act and that he's ultimately responsible for it, and they would say that without a pang of conscience. Obviously, most Calvinists don't go that far. An Arminian that believes that God respects and allows free will at the expense of sovereignty, note that point, is open theism would be that far to the other direction and saying that God's complete, God's not God, basically, is open theism. Yeah, he's like, hey, looky there. Who would have ever thought uh, Dave Robson would have given his life to Jesus? God would have just been stunned by that. Well. We probably uh, is. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm. You know, we're all stunned by it. But uh, the, the the bottom line with this, and and why it's even uh, worth discussing, is because uh, there's no new errors, and we see them repackaged in a lot of different ways. Uh, when you hear about people saying something like, "Oh, I read this book, and it made Jesus so much more relatable to me. It made the Bible and it made Jesus mm-hmm. come alive to me." Um, well, okay, if that means that uh, it led you to a deeper appreciation and understanding of who Jesus really is, that's great. I could get that from Hebrews 4. But mm-hmm. if you're saying by that, oh, you know, all this stuff in the Bible, all it's done is confused me, and this is sort of uh, something I can can handle, this is something I can relate to. Something you can uh, understand. Great uh, example of this, and I guess since we're going down the uh, pathway of famous Italians, um, Martin Scorsese uh, put a, out a movie called The Last Temptation of Christ, based mm-hmm. on a book by Nikos Kazantzakis of the same name. And what it did was it took Jesus and it, in a sense, lowered him down mm-hmm. to a place where we could sort of relate to him. Uh, you know, how far down did they lower Jesus? Well, so much so that one of the opening scenes is showing Willem Dafoe, by the way, who plays the Green Goblin in the Spider-Man series, playing Jesus in all of this. Uh, They show him making crosses for the Romans, using his carpenter skills to make crosses for the Romans to crucify his fellow Jews on with the hope that he'd make himself so reprehensible to his father that the father wouldn't force him to be the Messiah. And it goes on from there. Mm. Uh, you know, he says to uh, Mary Magdalene at one point, he said, I'm going into the wilderness to be purified. Uh, pray for me. I'm going to be cleansed from my sins. The worst sins I've committed have been to you. Mm. So, you know, and and obviously this movie created a big dust up and an uproar in, in the, the book that I wrote, Reasonable Doubts. We devote a chapter to it and how Hollywood tends to deal with Jesus, if you'd like to take a look at that. But, uh, but, when Martin Scorsese saw this big uproar going on, he was kind of shocked. He said, you know, all I tried to do in this movie was show that Jesus is just like us in his struggles to reach God and know God. Uh, I thought it would give us all hope. Mm. And so, you know, it's once again the pathway to H-E-double hockey sticks paved with good intentions. Uh, someone wanted to make Jesus uh, relatable uh, inevitably diminishes the person of Jesus. And that's serious because a fake Jesus can't save you. We don't want people putting their hope in someone who wasn't there. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when we see people, you know, going beyond the Bible uh, to get a a more lively or more relatable view of Jesus, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of Socinianism, to use that uh, $5 word, involved with all of that because the Socinians thought that God had to be 
in submission to their way of thinking. Mm. Uh, when people play cafeteria Christianity, and we see this quite a bit, where I, I like this part of the Bible, but I don't believe this part of the Bible. I don't want to dismiss the whole thing. I believe it contains the Word of God, but it's not necessarily every verse is the Word of God. Uh, that's kind of that Socinian mentality that says, okay, instead of the Bible being an authority over me, I'm an authority over the Bible. I can pick and choose and decide what's true and what's not. Mm. And inevitably, <laughs> the funny thing is when you go down that path, uh, you end up uh, probably picking the verses and the commandments that you would have kept anyway, and you can pat yourself on the back for being righteous for doing so. Yeah. Uh, but uh, like Ted Koppel said at his famous address at Duke University, said, uh, truth is not a tap on the shoulder, it's a howling reproach. Mm. Moses did not bring down the 10 suggestions from Mount Sinai, <laughs> they're the 10 commandments. Yeah. And so if you can read the Bible or you can read the life of Jesus, and there isn't something inside of you that's going, wow, that pretty much challenges me to the core, or man, uh, if God isn't grading on the curve, I'm in big trouble here, uh, you're not reading it right. Yeah, but, but these are the things that that flow out of all this. Yeah. And, you know, if you think that Socinianism is just something that theological eggheads discuss in their ivory towers, yeah, the label's a little off-putting, I guess, but the concepts are the same. There's no new errors mm. when it comes to false doctrine. But there yeah. are new TV shows that misrepresent the character of Christ, and we want to be sensitive to those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You so, have to be very, very discerning. Yeah. yeah. It sounds Movies, like TV shows, uh, right. books... And so on, anything that says uh, that, you know, this isn't in the Bible, but I think this is Jesus-y. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think you've got to be very careful about that. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of people trying to trying to make the Bible relevant and more palatable for people, and in doing so, they miss the whole Yeah, people point. say, well, well, all we're trying to do is make the Bible come alive. Well, it, yeah. <laughs> it's already living and active. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we want to uh, make Jesus... Uh, more relatable. Mm. Well, we're told that we don't have a high priest who can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who's been tested in all ways as we are yet without sin. He's completely relatable. He completely mm. relates to what we're going through. Yeah. So I, you know, I get I get a little nervous about all of that when that stuff comes up. Yeah, absolutely. Thank your, you. Your mileage may vary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, I have a question here from Tim. Um, it's a great sure. question. It's a very uh, practical question i would say can uh how can you love someone who you dislike what type of lifestyle they're in and how they're treating you if they're treating you badly and i guess that you know can make a larger question what is it to love your enemies the word tells us that god's love is perfect and loves if you want to be perfect and love perfectly you should love your enemies what does that look like practically to love your enemies or those in a alternative lifestyle or alternative belief system even impossible without direct divine intervention yeah i think i think that hits the nail on the head um you know i i'm trying to remember uh i think it was Karl marx who said uh, love your enemies is good advice but it is too hard for us yeah um <laughs> and i thoroughly agree with him yeah you know for me to love my enemies um i might tolerate them i might put on uh false face and mm. let them think that uh, I'm not holding anything against them. But I, like every other human being, uh, tend to love people who love me back. 
Mm. I tend to love people who make me feel good. I tend not to love so much people that make my life difficult, especially if they're going out of their way to do it, especially it's one of those situations where you're having to go, you know, they just said this is nothing personal, but it's sure, to quote Captain America, feels kind of personal. Mm. Uh, you know, when we're in a situation like that, I think we see uh, that the Christian life is not something we do for God. It, it's not saying, okay, I got to love people now. Okay, mm. that's the right thing to do. And it is the right thing to do. And I think we would all agree that's the right thing to do. But you try to do the right thing in your own power and your strength, your own strength, you're not going to get very far. You know, I, I think of a uh, situation that I went through back in the early 90s. I had just gone through a time where my life had completely gone nuclear uh, because I had a fairly prominent uh, role in a, a large church here in town. Uh, there was obviously a lot of gossip that was going on about what had happened. And a guy, you know, I thought I'd been dealing pretty well with what had happened. I felt like I was getting back on my feet. And a guy called me up and he said, oh, you know, I heard this and this and this happened. I heard you refused to go to counseling and all this. And I said, well, refused. I, I insisted on it. I said, oh, yeah, I told the person they were gossiping, but, uh, you know, that's what they said. And I went, oh, okay. And, man, when I got off the phone, I just <laughs> felt like I was back at step one as far as the depression that I had gone through. And uh, when I manage depression, what I do sometimes is I'll go out for a run and get the endorphins going, get fresh air. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always a time where I can talk to the Lord. And I went out on this run. It was up on the fire roads above uh, Irvine. And it was like the worst run I ever went on in my life. I felt like there were cinder blocks on my feet mm -hmm. when I was trudging along out there. And finally, I got out there by myself and I realized something. And, you know, and I said, you know, Lord, I got to tell you something honestly. I hate these people. I hate them. I don't hate the sin and love the sinner. I just hate them. I hate the fact they've got nothing to do with their crummy little lives and sit around and talk about me. I hate that. I hate them. I hate them. And, you know, I'm almost kind of yelling at this point. It's a good thing I was out there by myself or the guys with the Wild butterfly man, nets running down the street. Yeah. Gonna come <laughs> get me. But after I expressed that, it was just really funny. Like this calm came over me, and this picture in my mind came of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was kind of odd to me because I hadn't really been thinking about that verse or I hadn't read it recently. But it was the passage that says that uh, when Jesus was praying, he was sweating as it were great drops of blood mm. and uh, an angel came to strengthen him in the midst of this. And, and, you know, whether it's the Lord speaking to me or just this thought dawned on me, I think it's a scriptural thought, so you know, let's go with that. It was like uh, the Lord was saying, you know, if my son needed my power to do the right thing, what makes you think you can do the right thing on your own power? Mm. And I realized I was trying to do the right thing. Mm. I was trying to do it for God instead of letting the Lord do it. And, and so, you know, it just dawned on me at that moment. It was like a real revelation. Wait a minute. Jesus already died for these sins. He died for the sin of gossip. He died for people adding pain to people's pain. He's already paid the price for those sins. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So I said, all right, Lord, it doesn't change anything in it. I feel about these people, but I'm willing for you to forgive these people through me. I'm willing for you to give me the power to do that. Mm -hmm. And man, I just felt like a hundred pound weight went off my shoulders. It was just like almost instantaneous. Mm -hmm. And I, I wish I could tell you that I only had positive, lovely thoughts about these people. And you know, now I'm happy all the day. It was really a process. And I'd find myself going back to feeling bitter or angry, and it was like the Lord would 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 bring me back to that, and I would have to say, "Okay, Lord, you just forgive those people through me. I, I believe you died for them, 
And, and it was funny. After a little while, my thoughts began to change. Mm. Uh, you know, I started to think, well, Lord, you be gracious to them because you've been gracious to me. But your grace doesn't let me get away with a lot of, you know, and that, that's kind of where I went. And then finally I was like, yeah. oh, Lord, just just love on them. It's yeah. just got to be really rough living your life in a way that, you know, you're falling into sin like that and they can't be happy. And and finally, after a while, you're just praying for them. And, and God transforms your heart. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it's so important for us to understand that uh, loving one another is not something that will ever come natively or naturally to us. And when we do it, when it happens, it's a miracle. It really is. Very good. Oh, yeah. Sean, anything to add? We're almost out of time here, but... No, I pretty much spoke my piece. Uh, one more thing I want to get to before we leave. Yeah. Uh, we keep mentioning birth pangs as uh, the pattern of plagues and the signs of the times and so forth. And while that is in the original language alluded to in Matthew 24, the word sorrows is the same as that. Uh, you don't have to take our word for us or even the lexicon source on that because it's used elsewhere in Scripture as well, where in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, speaking directly of verse 1, concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, suddenly sudden destruction comes upon them, same word for sorrows, as pains on a woman in labor. Notice this, and they shall not escape. But then it notes that we aren't under that, uh, well, we're not the target of those things, so to yeah. speak. But yeah. the point being made, though, uh, Reynolds, and to those listening, is just that when we say birth pangs, this isn't because we are Calvary Chapel or because we watch the Left Behind movies. It's because Scripture consistently portrays the pattern of the end in this style, getting in more intense in frequency and intensity until the big moment draws near. That's the handling of the text, and it's supported by other Scriptures as well. Very good. Thanks for sharing awesome. that. Hey, uh, be praying for Peter Martin, who's usually here tonight. They're going to be welcoming, welcoming their son yeah. into the world tomorrow. They're sending in a search party and bringing him out. <laughs> so be, be, uh, be praying, and we'll be back uh, tomorrow. Same places, same faces, right, boys? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you so much for being part of the show. Great show. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.